Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each minute, movie by minutes host examine the 1946 William Wyler classic, the best years of our lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I am a podcaster. I'm the host of Locked On MLB, which is a baseball podcast. I was also the host of the Bull Durham Minute podcast. For those of you who follow the movie by minutes, I'm also a writer. I'm also a television producer, film director. I do a lot of stuff. Trust me. Today's episode, we are going to be covering minute 124, which begins with Peggy admitting she kissed Fred in front of her parents and ends with her telling her father that he's forgotten what it's like to be young and love. Well, someone who surely has not forgotten what it's like to be young and loved is my guest on today's show. He is a walking encyclopedia of certain cinematic knowledge. He is a senior producer of the Eli Roth's History of Horror on AMC. And he's also the author of the blog Eyes of Ben Shore. It is my tremendous pleasure to introduce to the Best Men's Podcast my friend Ben Raphael. Sure, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, you'll tell everyone you working with my my former college friend, Mr. Eli Roth. We went to NYU together. I appeared in a couple of his student films as police officers in various entities. He has his history of horror on AMC. Tell people a little bit about what that is about for who are not familiar with the show. I want to see those student films. Yeah, History of Horror is uh, a documentary series. It's in its third season now, which I'm so excited about. Every season, it, the first season was seven episodes. Each season since then has been six episodes. And we dive deep into the history of horror films. Eli knows everything about the genre and every and, and our showrunner, Kurt, that I do. So the it's, a, it's a, the editors do. So it's an amazing team of people who love horror films just exploring what they mean socially and culturally and what the what they mean to the people who watch them the people who make them we have incredible guests and this season is just going to be great I always have opinions on how the things I'm working on are going and this season it has a really magical feeling so I'm excited for people to see it in October that's great and I just got to say that i I, we went to uh, college together. And one thing I remember, this was the days when you had walls of VHS tapes. And that was kind of a status symbol amongst uh, film students. And I had a lot of the classic films and I had the films that I really loved. And I grew up a Spielberg and Lucas fan, but there was also a lot of, I was had a lot of Woody Allen films and a lot of Scorsese films. And he would be like, oh, there's this new Argentinian slasher film or this new film from, from Italy I never heard of before. Then you'd watch like five minutes of it and go like, I don't even know what I'm looking at it right now, but that's great. And by the way, I want to also throw a shout out to Eyes of Ben Shure. I have a feeling the people who follow this podcast will love Eyes of Ben Shure. 
I know I do, but tell people a little bit, describe what it is. Oh, I hope so. Well, basically, I just started that blog kind of for fun to write about whatever movie was interesting me on that particular day, or if I published an article somewhere else to link to it there. And it's been dead for a while. I, I just got to stop writing about movies. But just this week, I, I reintroduced it with an article about the Andy Sidaris movie, Malibu Express, which is like <laughs> the opposite of the best years of our lives. But people have liked it. And it's it's been fun. So I'm trying to get back into it again. And, and and start writing just for just for fun again about the movies I like. And you know, you go back and read your back posts, and they're still valid. The films are still there. I just I got a huge kick out of the fact that you wrote about Malibu Express, which is a film that I had seen before. I, it may have been in one of my times at NYU where we would go to Kim's video and just try to grab as many videos as humanly possible, but. One of the time when you, I saw that you wrote about Malibu Express, and it's one of those, like that that tiny brain cell in the back that had been dormant for a bunch of years. So I like, you saw that movie once, and like, oh my god, I did, didn't I? It was probably at two in the morning while shoveling Chinese food into my face. If they're if they're ever going to do a Malibu Express minute, I'm going to make sure to bring Ben Shore into it right away. Yeah, I've actually been thinking that would be an amazing thing. Or to do like a minute of all 12 of the Bullets, Bobs, and Babes series. It's very intimidating. A minute podcast is very intimidating to take on. I admire yes. that you've done it. Yes. But it is, it is like the most rewarding thing. Well, yeah, and I'll tell you something. I did, I did it for Bull Durham. I've been a guest in more of these than I care to admit, but I did it for Bull Durham. And it's incredible when you rewatch the movie after doing 104 or 105 episodes where you're dissecting every little, you know, the box of soap in the background or this person walking, you never notice them. And suddenly it's like how like birds have more cones in their eyes than they could see more than, than we can from a long distance. Uh, I guess like certain birds of prey, I guess, have that that ability. That's what's seeing the movie is like the, I've shoved more cones into my eye that I could now seen a film like Bull Durham many, many times before I did the movie by minute for it. But now when I've watched it, I said, like, oh, my God, I'm seeing there's so many more little details. And some of them make it more positive because I didn't realize this thing connected to that or this detail. But some of it is like, oh, I wish I didn't notice that thing in the background that's annoying me right now. So. Yeah. But, well, nothing's annoying about Best Years of Our Lives because I was trying to come up with a stable of people to ask, and I just threw a trial balloon out your way. It's like, hey, have you seen the film? And your reaction was like my dream reaction to bring someone into this because I, I, I may actually still have your reaction on, on our little text exchange we had, but you basically said you love this movie and you've seen it many, many times. And it's a, a film that you're very emotionally attached to. Yes, that's, that's, that's right. I first saw it in college when I was writing a paper on the history of motherhood in film. And my teacher said I had to watch it and I was obsessed with it. And I'm obsessed with William Wyler. He's yes. one of my, probably my five favorite filmmakers. And then when I was in graduate school, I taught American film history for many years, or TA'd it, and we watched it every year. So I watched it like 10 times and I taught it. And this, Best Years of Our Lives, 
a two and a half hour or three hour long black and white movie was always the students' favorite film. They always just loved the best years of our lives, which is amazing because they come in and they're like, ew, black and white, ew, like they don't like long movies, but this movie just impacted them so much. Uh, yeah, I just, I just love it. It's probably my favorite war movie ever made. Yeah, it's funny. I talked a, a little preview for everyone of a later episode I do with my brother i don't want to shock anyone but sometimes i record these slightly out of order but we both talked about how this film seemed daunting in theory like when i heard about it, it's three hours it's about people coming home and it's and i you read it it's like is this gonna be a soap opera is this what's it gonna be and that's and and i it, i was intimidated to watch it because i thought i'd be one of those films where you're watching it and you're the back of your head, you're thinking, this film may not end. This film may just keep going and going for until the heat death of the universe. And I th thought it was going to take two or three sittings to get through this. And, and I, I think it's, it's a testament to how brilliant the film is, is that it, in some ways it flies. I mean, it's a very dense movie. A lot of things happen in the film, certainly emotionally, but I, it, when you have a film where there's really several storylines going on, you have the Dane Andrews and Teresa Wright storyline, you have the Myrna Loy and Frederick March storyline, you have the Harold Russell storyline with his family. And usually when you have multiple storylines, there's usually a clunker. There's usually one you reach, okay, it's this stuff, fast forward, get to the most egregious one of that, I think, is the film American Gangster, which is a great Denzel Washington movie intercut with a boring Russell Crowe film. And boy, do I die for the remote when it cuts back to Russell Crowe <laughs> during his investigations. But this one, all three storylines are so rich, so well written, and so sincere that it's incredible that they, they're they all kind of at the same, I guess the wrong word, but the same level of interest and emotion and impact. Yes, that's that's so true. Um, I, because I, God, the, it's such a great screenplay. I forget who wrote, who wrote the screenplay again. I will dig it up right now while you say wonderfully insightful things. No, no. Well, I have a lot. You mentioned that the question, uh, is it a soap opera? And I have a lot of thoughts about that that I want to talk about maybe when we get into our minute, because it's a perfect minute to discuss that issue. But no, it's I love a I love a long movie with a lot of different intertwining characters and stories, and I especially love a movie about a small town mm -hmm. and the kind of makeup of a small town. I mean, Paden Place is like my favorite novel of all time. Uh, <laughs> okay, and, yeah, and, and not not like as camp either. I think it's a masterpiece. But this movie is maybe the greatest small town interwoven small town story because it's really about a small town in trauma. And that's, that's incredible, especially for the 40s. I mean, well, there's just, so many. I'll yeah. just say that the screenwriter, I just had to look it up just so I make sure I got the right name, was Robert E. Sherwood. And he was a, looked like he was kind of a staple. He'd done a bunch of classic films, including Rebecca. So he'd been the screenwriter of two films that won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Also later did The Bishop's Wife. And he, you know, he seemed like he also had a lot of like big budgeted films where it says uncredited. So I'm guessing he was also a script doctor, but he died not too long after this film came out. He died in 1955. 
So he and Joan Harrison wrote the screenplay for Rebecca, and he wrote the screenplay for Best Years of Our Lives, which he did win the Academy Award for. So kudos for him. Kudos for Robert Sherwood. But you're right. The, 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 one of the things that's incredible about William Wyler in, in, is when you look at the variety of his filmography, that you, you, you have films like this film, obviously. He, he directed three movies that won the Academy Award for Best Picture. You throw in a Ben-Hur in the middle of that you throw in i want to say he did funny girl did he, he did, did funny girl he did do yep. funny girl i mean like this, those are over how many decades was he churning out films that were not just you know good movies but successful blockbuster oscar winning films that that stand the test of time and yes. it's kind of incredible roman i started thinking the other big one roman holiday it's the other big one i was trying to think of mm-hmm. to try to think about the Heiress, which is a great movie, the original version of Desperate Hours, the original Big Country, The Collector. I mean, how many of these films did he do? Oh, I forgot he did Jezebel. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, he loved, Betty Davis loved him more than all of her other directors. She adored William Wyler. He did directed her in The Letter, too, which is amazing. Weathering Heights with, with Merlo <laughs> Stunning, The Children's Hour, which I think is a very underrated movie. I which mean, they make a sly reference to in the the Best Years of Our Lives. Frederick March says, what is this, The Children's Hour? I don't remember that. Tell, yeah, tell uh, me. That, uh, I forget which minute it was, but he does say, he, he makes a reference to The Children's Hour. So it's a little bit of... Uh, uh, a little self-referential movement that happens in that. So, and I love how in the for in the code era, like the children's hour meant lesbian. Like, it's like <laughs> if you say the children's hour, it's like uh, lesbians, but you can't say lesbians. But it's interesting, and this has come up in a previous minute. But I'll throw it out to you. Like, that's an amazing filmography he had. Filmography of, as I said. Box office hits. The Best Years of Our Lives was a huge box office success. Obviously, Ben-Hur was a blockbuster. Obviously, Funny Girl was a blockbuster. Three Academy Awards for three times directing the film that won Best Picture. And films that have that are part of the film language. Roman Holiday is certainly part of the, the film language. You can't look at Sword and Sandal Epic. The best one is Ben-Hur. So why does William Wyler get kind of the short you know end of the stick when it comes to people discussing the great filmmakers certainly of that era I mean he he's never mentioned in the same breath as I was like Hitchcock or even John Ford I'm sorry a lot of John Ford films put me to sleep I mean John Ford is a talented director now I'm not trying to take that away but uh, I can rattle off a lot more William Wyler films that I would rewatch before I ever pop the searchers back in. So I, I shouldn't say this publicly, but since you've been brave, I will say I completely agree with you, John Ford. I mean, John he's Ford, dead. The- What's he going to do? Is he going to sue us? <laughs> no, but the film scholars will come oh. after me. But see, I come from academia where like John Ford is like, blah, but I left academia for a reason. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm with you. I'd much, I would take William Wyler any day. And that's partly because William Wyler worked in genres that I like more. Although, like you say, he worked in almost every genre. I have a lot of theories about this, and I bet people who have been on the show have said 
a lot of the things I'm about to say, but maybe not. I don't know. But William Wyler, ever since when Andrew Saris wrote his big book that established the auteur theory, which was this whole idea that film directors were artists and their body of work had coherent sort of visual and thematic connections like the work of great authors or great painters, which really has influenced the way we think about filmmakers today and it influenced how filmmakers in the 70s made their movies and tried to make their mark. He, he even dissed William Wyler. He said like William Wyler isn't one of the great auteurs because he was just like a workman-like director in the studio, like a, like, a, like a man who made movies on the factory line. They told him what movie to make and then he made it. But that, and that, and I think you see that over and over again, where like a director like Orson Welles or Martin Scorsese has these very specific themes and visuals that they return to over and over again, no matter what the genre of the film, no matter what the film's about. And there's a, they're very kind of, they put their signature on their on their style. Other directors who I think are incredible, and the one I always think of is Paul Mazursky. I, I always think of him in relation to William Wyler for some reason. And these are directors who really adapt their style to the film they're making. Like when you look at something like Wuthering Heights, which is very gothic and very almost like, it looks like a universal horror movie in some ways, but to tell this kind of tragic love story and then look at Ben-Hur, which obviously this great biblical epic with the chariot race, and it just looks like an early <laughs> Michael Bay film or whatever. And then compare that to Funny Girl, which has these kind of swooping ecstatic camera movements with the musical numbers. And so much of it centers around just Barbara Streisand's electricity. Like it, you don't see, oh, this is the artist William Wyler who made all of these films, but that's why he's so great. I mean, he gives each film exactly what they need and he could work in so many different styles to tell the right story and to communicate what the characters were going through. So that's what I, that's why I find his, his body of work so thrilling, the lack of repetition. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he did have, have a coherent series of interests. He loved characters. He loved actors. He loved social issues. And he was able to meld social issues and political issues with entertainment in a way that most filmmakers can. So many, we, we see it over and over again, a movie that's like a social problem film that feels like eating your vegetables. It's not cinematically or emotionally exciting or entertaining. William Wyler could do, always could mix both in the most powerful way. And the best years of our lives is the, the ultimate example of that, maybe in all movies ever, but certainly in his, in his oeuvre. So I think it's really a, a problem and it says something about our values as a society that he's not celebrated all the time, that he's not mentioned in the same breath as Orson Welles or who, who I love as much as I love William Wyler, but I, I think it's a, it's a real problem. Right, That's my feel. There's a bunch to unpack there. First of all, I, I don't want to lose this Paul Mazursky. I've loved some of his films, didn't love some of his films, but if you haven't seen the film An Unmarried Woman with Joe, with Joe Clayberg, I know you have, but for, for our listeners, an Unmarried Woman from 19, I'm going to say 78, is a tremendous movie. I really love that movie. Okay, another thing. It's it's interesting you brought up Orson Welles and the fact that he's using Greg Tolan as a cinematographer here, who, of course, shot Citizen Kane. And Citizen Kane has very show-offy... And, and again, Citizen Kane is one of my favorite movies. I'm not about to trash Citizen Kane, mm -hmm. but there people remember the photography of that because there's so many 
creative things they did with depth of field and the way they did the lighting and it's very show-offy it's very it's a bravura directing and it works like crazy i would argue that the work that tolan did in this film is as effective just not as show-offy the use of you see the way they use depth of field and lighting and framing is not as in your face but it's it's more it's effective to the story. I think one of the things that I'll say about William Wyler and that makes his filmography so interesting, no matter what genre he jumps into, is that no matter what it is, with this is this could have been a home front soap opera. Roman Holiday could have been just a goofy romantic comedy. Ben Hur could have been like a Cecil B. DeMille film and try sitting through one of those right now without checking your watch every five minutes for those of us who still have watches. I, and, dis I disagree with that, but go on. But okay, okay. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the Ten Commandments. I guess that's part of it. But, or a lot of 60s musicals, some are great and some are, oh my God, just, just end me. And yet all the times that he dipped his toe into it, Funny Girl's a great movie. Ben-Hur's a great movie. This is a great movie, uh, Roman Holiday. And he makes it character-driven first. He doesn't lose sight of that. He doesn't lose sight that you rewatch these films and become interested, not because of the singing, but because you care about what they're singing about. The chariot race is not thrilling because horses are running around. It's thrilling because what's at stake. What the, this, These families intertwined in this fictitious version of Cincinnati, which is best years of our lives works because you give a damn. You give a damn that, that Aubrey Hepburn chops her hair off and is on a scooter with, with Gregory Peck going around Rome because you care about her and you care about him as opposed to it being, oh, they're funny. They look, it's not three coins in a fountain. I'm sorry if you like that film, but that's like, that's just, all right, nice shots of Rome and we're holding hands. So they, 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 once you get past the, the travel log part of it, I defy anyone to watch that without getting up and grabbing a snack. <laughs> and so these are, he like, he takes all these genres and say, I'm going to do the best one of these. I'm going to do the, I'm going to treat it because you remember in each one of those films I just mentioned, you remember Streisand and, and, and Omar Sharif. You remember Gregory Peck and uh, Aubrey, Audrey Hepburn. I almost said Catherine Hepburn. You remember the, the conflict between Stephen Boyd and Charlton Heston in Ben-Hur, of which the scene when Charlton Heston was going to try to chuck a spear into Stephen Boyd, he tells him, if you kill me, your mother and sister die today. That's as powerful as a naval battle where things are on fire because of the characters. And so he never loses sight of that. And, and he realizes no matter all the epic around it or whatever, this is what the audience cares about. And by never losing sight of that, he made the best of those genres. And F whoever doesn't throw him in and say, oh, he's just a workman this, then why are we still watching it? It's, oh, it's so true. And I, it's just, when I was in college, there was a retrospective of his films at the Film Forum, which I'm sure you remember in Oh, New I York. went to the Film Forum. Yes. And I went every weekend and it was like religious. And it's for exactly the reason that you're saying, because he his movies, 
you get connected to the characters like there's a freaking umbilical cord reaching out to the screen like you get so powerfully enraptured with these characters lives to the extent that i like forget what that feels like because so so few movies do it as effectively especially when you've seen a million movies yeah and whenever i watch it again it's always the same way and you're absolutely right he always put characters first and even when he and even the vision you're totally right greg tolan william wyler loved depth of focus shots and even that was in the for the sake of the characters and and for presenting a community or, or dramatic dynamics within a scene in a really subtle but powerful way. Uh, now everything you're saying is total is totally true. I'm just going to isolate that clip where you said everything you're saying is totally true, and have that be my ringtone. Okay, good. Because um, <laughs> I don't hear that enough in my life. Let's get to the minute for a second here because. This is building up to one of the, I mean, the, it really comes to a head in the upcoming minutes, but it's a wonderful sort of visual illustration of a family that we see in this shot. And, and I believe there's, there's no edits in this minute that we have here. It's all one continuous shot of which it begins with, Teresa Wright admitting to Myrna Loy and, and Frederick March. And forgive me, and people who listen to the episodes, I tend to refer to the characters by the actors' names just because I, I don't, I sometimes stumble across, uh, especially because we have a Fred and a Frederick March, but Frederick March doesn't play Fred. Sometimes I, I, I stumble across it. So, but she admits that she kissed Dana Andrews. And this is quite an admission that he's she's making to her her parents that she's basically in a very low-key way committing adultery and but she's already admitted she wants to to break the marriage up so it's she's made it clear that it's not just a fantasy of hers but it's somewhat reciprocated and she's hoping that it is <laughs> i guess in her mind she's hoping that her parents are going to be on her side of this but this scene shows so much about how do you tell a story and, and show relationships by framing and where people are in the frame and have it not be, as we were saying before, this isn't the punch you in the face of Hitchcock or Wells. This is a way that is subtle enough that emotionally you're understanding it without it being something that is so over the top. And the one point I want to bring is when she's making her case, it's a three shot and she's there and she's holding onto the chair as if holding on for support. And when Frederick March doesn't give it to her and starts calling Dan Andrews character, a smooth operator, and she gets upset, she walks to the, to, to screen right so now she's alone as if to say all right all right if you're not, you're not going to support me on this i'm on this by myself and she's trying to to emotionally she's like all right i'm i'll do this by myself if you're not with me and then when he's and she sits down because she can't quite support herself and then when she does that frederick march comes back into the frame as if to say no 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 i have wisdom here i'm not gonna let you go and go at this by yourself but myrna loy doesn't come over so there's a whole thing of the dynamic of the family in what could have been 
just three people standing there, three people sitting at a table, cut, cut, wide shot, cut, cut everyone's single shot. In the hands of an intelligent director, it makes the dynamic and how the scene is flowing. And it really comes to a head in the next minute when Frederick March returns to Myrna Loy in the shot, you're showing the emotions and the relationship of the characters by movement and by placement as opposed to relying entirely on the dialogue. And that's, again, I'll say something weird here. This scene is as skillfully directed as the chariot race. Mm, totally because that, that there's, there's almost as much movement as the chariot race in this scene, but that there's so much emotional dynamics happening within the frame and the movement of the frame and the fact that I had to double check to see if there was an edit shows that it's stuff that is happening subconsciously as opposed to, I'll, I'll throw another director who's a tad over the top. If this were Brian De Palma, <laughs> and Brian De Palma has all the subtlety of Hiroshima, that this is, you're watching this and you're seeing the relationship of the family without being told the relationship of the family. Yeah. Another uh, little nuance that I like to I totally, I totally agree. I like that when she's telling, confessing what happened, and Frederick March is so upset, she's holding Myrtleoy's hand, and Myrtleoy doesn't talk at all in this minute. But I, of course, I was watching her because I love her, and there's a lot of there's this kind of subtle supportive dynamic between the mother and and uh, Peggy or Teresa Wright, where it, there's the, the suggestion that she's not saying anything, but she'll be on her side. And then when Teresa Wright is sitting and Frederick March is standing over her and he is kind of trying to, he, he, he it's, it's always, it's complicated because he's a good father and he's, he's trying to impart his wisdom, but he's also being like the father who's the, the man standing above the daughter. But at the same time, she's asserting herself and saying like, look, I'm going to end this marriage and I don't have to tell you how I'm going to end it, but I'm going to end it. And it's right. And I, I know, and you don't. And there's a lot of generation gap stuff going on in this movie. There's a lot of gender role shifting going on in this movie. So that kind of visual where he's above her and he's very much the paternalistic character, but she's and she's below him, but she's asserting herself and saying, I'm not, I'm not just gonna do what you say. That to be kind of emblematizes both like the kind of post-war shifts that were going on socially and how this movie sort of grapples with them through dialogue but also visually i think it's so great and we see this at a later minute that but you're starting to really feel this in this minute that Fre frederick march's character has returned from war where it was obviously the horrors of war and everything like that but there was a sense of kind of order that like this there's a chain of command this person says this and th they do that. And when he had left this family, everyone was what, four or five years younger. Mm -hmm. And so he was clearly the father that people would listen to. And you're starting to see in this scene, it's starting to lose a grip of that, that he's no longer in charge. And the, those who would have to listen to him are no longer listening to him and are being rebellious and leaving the frame. And he walks back in to say, no, 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 I'm still in charge here. And a whole bunch of this. And remember in the previous scene, he had been 
at the office sort of dinner party where he was sloshed and was saying insulting things to his boss because he's starting to lose grasp of all the things essentially that he was fighting for. And so this is him, a little bit of him saying, I'm not going to lose you too. I'm not going to lose control here at my house that I'm, the, that I'm in control of. And, but we're also seeing this is a part of every generation thinks they're smarter than the previous one. And mm-hmm. we're going to see this come to a head when when Myrna Loy finally speaks up in the next minute, but every generation thinks they've discovered what love means, what sex means, what justice means in a way that the previous generation didn't. And the previous generation always looks at the young generation going like, you don't quite get it, do you? And this is weird for me to be watching because I'm 49 now. I saw this movie when I was closer to Teresa Wright's age. Now I'm closer to Frederick March's age. Sometimes you can watch a movie and it means something quite different when you're older. Like try watching The Graduate in your late 40s and suddenly Mrs. Robinson makes a lot more sense. Oh my, I was just thinking about that the other day, actually. That's really funny. <laughs> I was like, I was like, God, I identify with Mrs. Robinson. And I was like, mm. oh, I totally, but I totally, I watched it. I was younger than Ben. Now I'm older than Mrs. Robinson. Now I'm like, no, she was right. She was 100% <laughs> right. This is a movie about her. <laughs> and it's funny because when I was, um, I think probably when I was uh, Teresa Wright's age, I definitely thought I understood love and sex and, and life in the way my parents hadn't. And now I'm almost 40 and I don't think I understand love and sex. I don't think I understand any of it. I don't think my parents do either. But I think that's what you learn. That it's not that you understand and the generation before you does it. It's that they don't understand, you don't understand, and nobody understands that <laughs> you never can. But maybe that's just my cynicism. But there's there's so much. I love the way this movie, that's one thing I wanted to talk about that came up in this in this scene, the way this movie deals with what happened with women during the war? Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, the men went away and the women were like, they didn't need them. They were working. They were they were just kind of, they were, they were on their own, establishing their own social hierarchies and systems. And, and then the men came back and expected everything to be the same. And then this movie really deals with that in such interesting ways through all the women characters. And I remember my professor and I, when I first saw it, talked a lot about the kind of triangle of Teresa Wright, Peggy, Fred, and Mary, Mary Derry, the character played by Virginia Mayo. That she, Virginia Mayo was Fred's wife, right? Am I getting the casting right there? I believe that's right. Yeah, yeah. And that, that sort yeah, of... Marie, Vir, Vir, Virginia Mayo was played Marie, who was married to Fred. And Kathy O'Donnell was, was Wilma, who was the Harold Russell's love right. interest. And that love triangle kind of comes out in this scene because mm-hmm. Peggy is saying, oh, basically she's this, this bitch who was attracted to him because he was a smooth talker with money and she didn't know who he was. And that's kind of how Marie is portrayed for, throughout the film. She's like, oh, I want you to take me to clubs. I want to be glamorous. And she's angry that he doesn't have a lot, a lot of money. And But part of that, I always feel sorry for her. Whereas Peggy is like the nurturing woman who's going to hold him through his trauma and like and and rock him and just be comforting to him like in that earlier scene where he's having the PTSD nightmare and they're in the bed but I always feel sorry for Marie kind of because she had this life 
during the war and then he came back and he wants to change it and she wants it to be the way it was before she wants to be independent and go out and do things and so, so my professor at the time said that this movie was kind of trying in some ways and i think it's it's more complicated than this and she would have acknowledged that too it's trying in some ways to tell women what their roles it's both dealing with the fact that all the roles have changed, but maybe also in a way telling women what their roles should be. Like you need to nurture the soldiers who come back. You need to help them. You need to be maternal to them. You need to guide them through their traumas. Like you have to kind of give up your the, your independent needs from the war. And granted, I haven't seen the movie in a few years. If I watched it today, I might think that it's less clear cut than that. I don't know, but I think through the love triangle of Peggy, Marie and Fred, that really, that kind of really comes out. Yeah. And it really, it takes, it's a complex film and that's a complex issue of what women's roles were. And it doesn't, it's not afraid to bring that up, which is really daring for a film in 1946. Yes. And it made the women not just rubbing their hands and, oh, are you okay? Like they are, they're well-rounded characters with a sense of independence that was given to them that they probably were not expecting to have, but they're not about to give it up. And there's a lot of things about the world that these three men we follow, essentially the three men returning are entering a world that they are not necessarily familiar with. And it's one of the things that makes, that makes this film, yeah, it's going to stand the test of time and it has stood the test of time, much like the film Malibu Express. Yeah, I was trying to think if there been any because they're in the forties. There was the cycle of kind of war movies about the home to home front, like since you went away, and I'll be seeing you is another one, which is amazing, and people don't talk about it enough. Amazing depiction of PTSD. Are there movies? I'm so I'm a little more disconnected from current movies. Like, have there been movies that really deal with like the impact of the current war of the people at home? I mean, I'm sure someone will say American Sniper, or right. someone will say the scenes from The Hurt Locker when he comes back home. Um, yes, but the herd locker. Yes, but the herd locker. A lot of that takes place with him right. in no, the war. No, I know, I know. None I, I, of the best years of our lives. Right. Uh, I mean, there's. Is there? Is basically you're saying is there a coming home for the the Iraq or Afghanistan war? Not off the top of my head. I have to give that some extra thought. I mean, that's some food for thought. Maybe I'll. That'll be Ben Schur's, uh question that I ask, answer in a later episode. But, oh, uh, great! Please do. <laughs> well, hey, look, uh, Ben Raphael. Sure, I said, hey, let's do twenty minutes, and here we are. We're <laughs> we're approaching the forty-five minute mark. This was. Oh no! Uh, no, no, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I knew we'd be able to get into this. Tell people where they can find your stuff and read your stuff, and and even if it's reading the old stuff, it's all terrific. Sure, sure, sure. It's like one of those weird blogger blogger website addresses. So I just the best way is to Google Eyes of Ben Schur, and it's spelled S-H-E-R. Uh, that's my last name. You could also look for me on, on Facebook at Ben Raphael Schur. If you have good taste in movies, I'll usually accept your friend request. I love interacting <laughs> with people. And yeah, and then look for, we don't have a release date for History of Horror yet, but it'll be in probably late October. It usually starts or like a week or two before Halloween. So look out for that, and I hope you like it. Uh, do you know what we'll do? We'll throw a link to the Eyes of Ben Shur on our Twitter handle, which is the best minutes on Twitter. So that may just make it easier there. And for everyone oh, else, listen to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or at the main site, which is thebestminutes.com. 
I'm personally on Twitter at Sully Baseball. I'm at Sully Baseball Podcast on Instagram. And if you're still on Facebook, then please join us at Butch's Place, the best years of our lives, Listener Cafe, where we talk about all the episodes and we talk about other things connected to best years of our lives. And we throw links up to the other guest hosts who have their own podcast so we can all stay connected there and if you love the movie by minute genre chances are your favorite movie is one of the over 170 films that have been given the movie by minutes treatment go over to moviebyminutes.com and check that out find the film you love or find one and say i can't believe they did a deep dive on that film so they're terrific uh, i did Boulder a minute Shout out to the folks at Star Wars Minutes who kind of started this whole thing and the good folks at Indiana Jones Minute who introduced me to this genre. So, well, this has been Minute 124. Thanks so much, Ben Raphael Sure. And in tomorrow's Minute, we're going to be going over Minute 125. We're going to be seeing what will happen in the family dynamic with that smooth operator entering this close-knit family on the next episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Hey, Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.